Welcome to TIFF Talk, sponsored by Endogastric Solutions, a podcast that interviews physicians and real-life patients about the most common gastrointestinal disorder, GERD, commonly known as chronic acid reflux. Listen to patients and physicians interact, break down the disease from different perspectives, and learn how taking the next step in your treatment can change your life. For our audio listeners, you can see visuals on our YouTube channel at GERD Help. The TIF procedure may or may not be appropriate for your health condition. Only your doctor can explain the benefits and risks of all treatment options. Results may vary. Visit GERDHelp.com for more clinical data. The TIF procedure for reflux was developed by Endogastric Solutions Incorporated. Hello and welcome to our TIFF talk tonight. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We're very excited for our special guest that we have here this evening, uh, Dr. Akutan Shah. Thank you for being here uh, this evening. We really appreciate it. And thank you for all of you who are joining us this evening on our TIFF talk. So let me give a little bit of a background of Dr. Shah. Uh, He is a fellowship trained and is board certified in gastroenterology, internal medicine, and pediatrics. He has expertise in treating the entire spectrum of gastrointestinal conditions, including high quality training and prevention, advanced endoscopy and colonoscopy techniques, ERCP, gastroesophageal reflux disease, eosinophilic, I'm going to say this wrong, Dr. Shaw, eosinophilic esophagitis, H. pylori, gastritis, motility disorders, liver disease, pancreatitis and bile duct conditions, celiac disease, irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel syndrome as well. Uh, Dr. Shaw is a community leader in the most up-to-date technology in gastroenterology procedures and the first community gastroenterologist in Orange County, California to perform the TIF procedure. So welcome, Dr. Shaw, and thank you so much for being here with us this evening. Thank you very much for having me, Andrea. Um, can you hear me okay? I can, yes, absolutely. Hey, wonderful. Thank you all for joining us today, and I feel very grateful to be able to share the knowledge I have about this very important and very common and life-altering condition. My name is Ketan Shah. I'm a gastroenterologist at the Saddleback Medical Group in Laguna Hills, California. So today we'll be talking about GERD, and here's our agenda. We'll be discussing what is GERD, and we'll be discussing strategies on managing your GERD, the currently available treatment options, as well as, of course, the TIF procedure for acid reflux. So what is GERD? GERD stands for gastroesophageal reflux disease, and it occurs when the stomach contents and acid come back up into the esophagus. And it can cause significant symptoms such as heartburn, regurgitation, trouble swallowing, inability to uh, sleep flat. But there can also be um, many atypical types of symptoms that could be caused by acid reflux, including cough, sore throat, asthma, hoarseness, throat clearing. There are actually dozens of different symptoms that people suffer from uh, when it comes to acid reflux. 
And you're not alone if you have acid reflux because it's just so incredibly common up to one in four people suffer from acid reflux. Why does acid reflux or GERD happen? Well, between the esophagus and the stomach, there is a valve which is supposed to act like a one-way valve that's supposed to allow food to go down and prevent acid from going back up. But when this valve becomes dysfunctional or too loose, then acid and other stomach contents are then allowed to come back up into the esophagus. Let's talk in greater detail about exactly why this happens. On the right, the diagram shows a functional valve. The LES stands for lower esophageal sphincter, and the lower esophageal sphincter is supposed to act exactly as it sounds, like a sphincter. It's supposed to allow food and liquids to go down. It's supposed to prevent acid and other stomach contents from going back up. But on the diagram on the left, we see that the LES is open, or the lower esophageal sphincter is open, and it's allowing acid and other stomach contents to go up into the esophagus. But what's very important, which we'll come back to in greater detail later, is that there are actually two components of this valve. As we see in the diagram on the left, the diaphragm, which is a sheet of muscle that helps us breathe, pinches the lower part of the esophagus. And that is one of the critical components of this valve. And of course, the lower esophageal sphincter is a sphincter muscle which acts like a flat valve that's supposed to open and close as well. And the two component, understanding that there are two components of this valve is extremely important. And we'll talk about that more in just a bit. Why do we care about this condition? Well, of course, number one, it be, it's because it makes people feel bad in terms of their symptoms of heartburn, regurgitation, inability to lie flat, all of the symptoms that we've talked about and many of you suffer from. But we as physicians also care deeply about this condition because it can lead to other serious conditions, including things like esophagitis or inflammation in the esophagus. And when the esophagitis goes untreated, then it can result into more serious complications, such as narrowings in the esophagus, ulcers in the esophagus, severe bleeding, precancerous changes called Barrett's esophagus, and it can also lead to esophageal cancer um, in uncommon conditions. But the alarming trend is the rate of esophageal cancer in this country. So we see here on the diagram on the left, compared with other cancers, the rate of esophageal cancer is rising at an alarming rate and much more quickly than other cancers in this country. And on the diagram on the right, we see that both the incidence and the esophageal cancer is rising rapidly. And the most, the, the most important risk factor for esophageal cancer is acid reflux. So what can we do about acid reflux? Well, there are many different strategies that we as physicians discuss with our patients. And that range, and there's a huge spectrum of these strategies, including, as you see on the left, lifestyle changes. And when those are ineffective, then we talk about medications. And then, as we'll talk about later, there are also procedures and surgeries that can be uh, offered to patients. And we'll talk about each of these briefly before we go into further depth about procedures. Patients often go down many journeys and many roads in, uh, their, in their management of their acid reflux. They try lifestyle modifications, medications. They may uh, end up being offered procedures, but they may go down many roads, unfortunately, many of which may lead to a dead end before they find a road that leads to uh, improvement. And it can be very frustrating 
for patients. Briefly, there are many lifestyle changes that can be offered to patients. The most important ones include maintaining a healthy weight and, um, and losing any excess weight, but also eating smaller but more frequent meals throughout the day, minimizing alcohol, avoiding smoking, uh, exercising regularly. One of the most important things is avoiding lying down too soon after a meal, um, particularly about two to three hours. For patients who continue to have symptoms, um, despite waiting to uh, lie down after they eat, they can prop the head of the bed up. But it is important to actually uh, prop the head, the entire bed up, as opposed to just sleeping on uh, multiple pillows because the actual torso needs to be elevated as opposed to just the head. When the lifestyle modifications are not enough, we do often prescribe acid suppression medications and there are multiple different classes of medications, including antacids, which uh, work to neutralize or buffer acid in the stomach, H2 blockers, which stands for histamine 2 blockers, which block one of the multiple receptors that the stomach cells have that tell them to make acid. And then finally, proton pump inhibitors, which are probably the most uh, commonly known medications, which block the microscopic pumps that the stomach cells use to pump out acid into the stomach. We often do need to escalate the dosages of these medications, and sometimes the medications work for a long period of time, and other times they do stop working. The downside of medications is that they can also have risks of side effects and complications. I think most people have heard that proton pump, inhibitor, proton pump inhibitors don't come without their risk. We could talk for an hour about the possible risks of PPIs. I've put a list of them here on the screen, um, but some risks that have been, or some concerns that have been raised in the past include things like a possible increased risk of cognitive um, disorders, uh, increased risk of uh, bone density loss and possible fractures, um, possible increased risk of malabsorption of certain vitamins and minerals, such as calcium, vitamin B12, magnesium, uh, possible reduced kidney function, um, possible increased risk of certain types of infections. So this topic is actually very controversial and there are many papers showing that there are possible complications or risks from proton pump inhibitors or showing that there are, uh, that have disproven many of these risks. And so I don't want to um, scare many people who take PPIs on a long-term basis. And I, this slide is actually for reassurance about PPIs. In 2019, the first ever randomized trial uh, was published in uh, about 18,000 patients who were fo followed for about three years in which these patients were randomized to either proton pump inhibitors or placebo. And fortunately, that gave us some reassurance that there was no increased risk in this paper of certain conditions like gastric atrophy, kidney problems, dementia, pneumonia, fracture, lung problems, diabetes. However, there was a slight increased risk of certain intestinal infections, possibly including C. difficile infection. Um, so if you ask me, is there a major concern about uh, prescribing PPIs over the long term? Probably not a huge concern. Do I prescribe PPIs myself? Absolutely. Is there a possible increased risk of long-term side effects? I think there probably is some concern that still needs to be further studied. For example, in this study, though there was no um, major increased risk, 
the patients were followed for only three years and potentially taking them for a longer period of time and studying these patients may uncover some side effects. But in general, yes, medications can make patients feel better, but they don't treat the underlying problem, which as we discussed, the underlying problem of, of acid reflux is a mechanical problem of the valve being too loose. It's very rare for patients to actually um, be secreting too much acid. Many patients ask me, can't I just reduce the, don't I, don't I make too much acid? And if I just reduce the amount of acid I make, uh, won't I be okay? And the answer 99% of the time is, is no. Most patients produce a normal amount of acid. The problem is a mechanical problem that the barrier between the esophagus and the stomach is dysfunctional. And the only way to truly uh, address that is to address the underlying problem of the mechanical barrier, which would, um, which would be a mechanical repair. So when patients uh, consider anti-reflux surgery, it can be for multiple reasons. And, and these are the reasons that I see patients uh, coming to me uh, interested in anti-reflux surgery or procedures. Number one, actually a good percentage of patients, about 20% of patients in my experience, have had incomplete symptom control. Again, the medications suppress the amount of acid that we make, but the medications do nothing to the fact that stomach contents still come up into the esophagus. So patients do frequently complain of persistent regurgitation, albeit may not, it may not be acidic regurgitation anymore. Patients still frequently complain of persistent regurgitation, inability to lie down at night because of the regurgitation. And then those atypical symptoms can be very stubborn to treat with medications, especially that stubborn cough or the hoarseness or the sore throat, very commonly incompletely controlled on PPIs. Side effects of PPIs we just discussed, and patients may have uh, actually experienced some side effects, which I've definitely seen many patients. Patients may have an increased risk of side effects, such as uh, decreased bone density, osteopenia, osteoporosis, history of chronic kidney disease. Those patients are probably at higher risk of, uh, of side effects. Patients may understandably be afraid of developing side effects, which uh, we hear about frequently in the news. Patients may want to stop their medications for other reasons, such as interactions between PPIs and other medications they take. The inconvenience of having to take a medication every day is certainly a valid concern. We actually recommend taking PPIs 30 to 60 minutes before a meal, and it can be very cumbersome to be able to take it at such a precise time every day. Um, and finally, patients just understandably often come to me because they want to fix to their underlying mechanical problem and want to stop masking their symptoms by just suppressing the acid that their stomach secretes. So going back to the spectrum of treatments, there are now multiple uh, options that we have for patients who want an anatomic correction or a, a mechanical fix to their mechanical problem. And we'll talk about these, um, each of the, each of the uh, potential options. We can't talk about anti-reflux surgery and procedures without talking about the Nissen fundoplication, which is considered the gold standard of anti-reflux surgery. And when I say gold standard, it doesn't mean it's the best procedure. It just means that it's the procedure that all other procedures are compared against. The Nissen fundoplication has been around for over 50 years, uh, and it's still performed very commonly today. And uh, this is a type of surgery that a surgeon performs where they take the top of the stomach and they wrap it around the bottom of the esophagus and they secure it with some non-absorbable sutures as you see on the screen. 
And this creates a new barrier between the esophagus and the stomach. And notice I'm using the word barrier as opposed to valve, and that's because it truly is a new barrier as opposed to valve. And that the creation of that new barrier is what leads to a lot of the concerns about the common side effects of this conventional anti-reflux surgery or the Nissen fund application. And these side effects are very common. And I'm sure every gastroenterologist has seen patients who have undergone a Nissen fund application who complain of these symptoms long-term, including difficulty swallowing, inability to belch, inability to vomit, increased gas, bloating, flatulence, diarrhea. And the studies report that these symptoms can occur up to 50% of the time. And that's, that's not a small number at all. I've certainly have seen um, uh, numerous patients complaining of these symptoms after a Nissen fund application. And these are the reasons why they've come up with newer, more minimally invasive um, methods of controlling acid reflux. There can also be other complications of the Nissen fund application, um, some examples of which can be seen here on the screen, but I won't go into great detail. The Lynx procedure is something that um, very, is very novel, very interesting, and it can be very effective for acid reflux. And it is another surgical procedure where a surgeon places a ring of magnetic beads around the bottom of the esophagus, as you see on the screen. And this ring of magnetic beads is supposed to expand and collapse as food goes past the valve. And it's supposed to allow food to go past that valve. And it's supposed to not allow acid and stomach contents to go up into the esophagus. It was FDA approved in 2012 and has good data to support it, but I do have some concerns about it. Um, mainly is that 10 to 15% of patients do complain of difficulty swallowing or dysphagia um, because they feel that that ring of magnetic beads may be still a little bit too tight for them. Other concerns are that it is a foreign body that goes into the body and the foreign body is magnets, uh, consists of magnets. There are some, uh, albeit rare, but some reports of erosion of those magnets into the esophagus, which could be a major, sometimes life-threatening problem. And another concern is that there is a restriction on MRIs um, with really any metal in the body, but especially with magnets being in the body, there are certain types of MRIs that are not allowed to be uh, obtained on a patient with the Lynx procedure, um, particularly if a patient needs an MRI for if they've had a concern about a stroke or um, a seizure or a bleeding problem in their brain or a tumor in their brain and so forth, um, that this procedure may, uh, may end up preventing a patient from being able to get the MRI that they need. So that takes me to the endoscopic version of the fundoplication procedure or the TIF procedure. The TIF procedure stands for the transoral incisionless fundoplication. And in my opinion, it provides the best balance between tolerability and effectiveness. It was FDA approved back in 2007. It's gone through multiple iterations of the device and the procedure where the company that makes the device Endogastric Solutions has really done a great job fine tuning the procedure and the device to get it to a point where it can be performed very safely and effectively um, and, and in a very streamlined manner. Um, and this procedure, as I'll show you, is the only one that really truly restores the anatom anatomy as close back to normal as, as possible. Um, up, the efficacy of all these procedures is about the same. They're very effective. 80 to 95% of patients are able to completely stop their 
proton pump inhibitors. And the most important key point here is the last point, which is that there's a very low incidence of long-term side effects of less than 1% of all of the side effects that we have discussed so far that can be associated with the other procedures. So let's get right into it and see what this procedure is about. So here's an animation of the procedure done, which is when we insert a device through the mouth and under the uh, guidance of the camera, we take up some tissue from the top of the stomach and we pull it down and we are essentially reconstructing the valve back to normal anatomy. We can sometimes reduce a small hiatal hernia, which we'll talk about in a bit. And then our work is secured by these non-absorbable sutures, poly polypropylene sutures or fasteners. And we place 20 to 30 fasteners to um, reconstruct the valve. And over several weeks, the valve ends up fusing and healing and becomes a restoration of normal anatomy as we see on the screen. And here's an, uh, a, a diagram depiction of what the valve looks like after it's been restored back to normal anatomy with the TIF procedure. Here's another diagram again depicting what I just explained, which is that the, this device is, is all done, the procedure is all done through the mouth and we insert this device down through the mouth, similar to an upper uh, endoscopy where we put a camera down the mouth and under the guidance of the camera, we're pulling tissue down from the top of the stomach and reconstructing a new valve by lengthening and tightening this, uh, the lower part of the esophagus and really restoring the valve back to normal anatomy that we're all born with. Here's an example of one of my patients that I performed this procedure on back in 2018. And we look at the, the image at the top left of the screen. This was uh, this nice lady's anatomy before we did anything where we see the camera coming through that junction. We're looking up at the top of the stomach in an upside down view at that junction, which hers we see was very wide open. And she had severe acid reflux symptoms, even despite maximum doses of proton pump inhibitors. And uh, I performed the TIF procedure on her, and we see that her valve immediately after the TIF procedure uh, was restored back to normal. It was a very nice and tight and a lengthened valve. And I took another look uh, six months later, and we see that the valve is still back to normal anatomy. And if you look at the graphs on the bottom of the screen, this is a test that we uh, often perform before and after doing this procedure, just showing how much acid uh, a person's esophagus is being exposed to. If you look at the diagram on the left, all of those red spikes at the bottom of that diagram are this lady's acid reflux events over a course of 48 hours. And you see some uh, numerical values just showing how severe her acid reflux was. And six months later, after we repeated the study, we see almost no red spikes and we see normalization of her acid exposure. So this is proof that her acid reflux has been cured. This is a very important diagram and excuse if, uh, if this is a little too graphic for you, uh, but I think it's extremely important to understand this because if we look at the four images at the middle of the screen and we see the grade one, two, three, and four, this is what we as gastroenterologists use to grade the severity of the looseness of the valves uh, of, of patients who come in to see us for acid reflux. 
And uh, the grade one would be a normal valve. Grade four would be a very wide open, highly abnormal valve. And we see the same images I showed you on the last slide of my patient, pre-TIF, six months post-TIF. And if you compare the way her valve looked six months post-TIF to that Hill grade one picture, it looks very similar. And I do wanna show you some pictures of uh, patients who have had a Nissen fundoplication, which is that conventional anti-reflux surgery where the, the stomach is wrapped around the bottom of the esophagus. And we see, yep, those valves look very tight, but they also don't really look normal. They look kind of twisted and very tight. Um, the top image is, is kind of a, a standard textbook image of someone with Nissen fundoplication. The bottom image is actually one of my patients who had a Nissen fundoplication who really has come to me with a lot of problems and really wishing he never had the procedure because he's just had such severe gas, bloating, um, and really incapacitating flatulence. Um, and, and again, he unfortunately wishes he never had that Nissen fundoplication. Um, and that's that, that patient's um, valve that we see there um, who had the conventional type of surgery. Has this procedure been proven in clinical trials? Absolutely. The clinical data is very robust um, and dozens of trials have been performed, including long-term randomized sham controlled trials. And if you put all the trials together, we see that in, uh, in the initial period, about 81% of patients are able to completely stop their acid reflux medications. And um, in these trials, about 80% of patients uh, who have esophagitis or erosions in the esophagus from acid have been completely healed. We look at, we now have long-term data, five-year and now some 10-year data showing that symptomatically patients' heartburn, regurgitation, and quality of life significantly improve after the procedure and they remain at a very low level uh, at even 10 years out. So patients are, are happy initially and they remain happy for several years. I know this is kind of a busy slide, but it's just important to, uh, to compare some of these procedures with each other, like the TIF and the ARS, which is anti-reflux surgery, like the conventional Nissen fundoplication. We see those first four rows showing that the clinical benefits, meaning improvement in symptoms, healing of esophagitis, normalization of the pH when we look at a patient's pH study, really is about the same among all of these procedures. They're all very effective at controlling acid reflux. But if we look at the significant adverse event rate, we see in, uh, in anti-reflux surgery, the rates um, are six to 28%, as opposed to with the TIF procedure, 0.4 to 3%, really less than, uh, less than 1% rate of significant adverse events. Most importantly, the long-term side effect profile is very favorable with the TIF procedure in that less than 1% of patients complain of dysphagia, trouble swallowing, gas, bloating, flatulence, diarrhea. But you see the numbers on the screen. Those are actual clinical studies showing um, those very high numbers um, of patients who experience these long-term side effects with conventional anti-reflux surgery. So let's go back to talking about the anatomy again. And I told you I'd come back to this, that there are actually two valves that help protect our esophagus from uh, exposure of acid from the stomach. One is the lower esophageal sphincter valve. That's the valve that's repaired by the TIF procedure, but the diaphragm also plays a critical role in this valve function. And as you see on this diagram, the diaphragm pinches the lower part of the esophagus, which also protects the esophagus from acid. 
So many patients, the reason I'm explaining this is that many patients also need what's called a laparoscopic hiatal hernia repair. And I'll tell you at this point, um, over 90% of patients who get a TIF procedure these days are also getting a laparoscopic hiatal hernia repair. So we tend to kind of not emphasize the incisionless part of the TIF procedure these days because patients do still often need um, some incisions for a laparoscopic hiatal hernia repair. And you see kind of a, a depiction here of that. Here's a, a video of what a hiatal hernia is. Again, it's when the stomach gets pushed up above the diaphragm into the chest when the opening in the diaphragm is too wide open. And this contributes to acid reflux. And when a surgeon repairs a hiatal hernia, what they do is that they first bring the stomach back down below the diaphragm and then they place a few sutures in that opening of the diaphragm, again, to restore that anatomy back to normal. Here are a few diagrams uh, showing what a surgeon does when they do a hiatal hernia repair. Again, this is a procedure that's done in addition to the TIF procedure, but commonly done at the same time under the same anesthesia. So the first part is when the surgeon brings the stomach back down below the diaphragm. The second part is when the surgeon places a few sutures to close up uh, the opening in the diaphragm, restoring anatomy back to normal. A couple of more diagrams showing the same, essentially restoring the anatomy of the diaphragm back to normal to allow the diaphragm to pinch the lower part of the esophagus. When this is done uh, along with the TIF procedure, we call that the concomitant TIF procedure or concomitant laparoscopic hiatal hernia repair plus transoral incisionless fundoplication. And one of my mentors, Dr. Chang at UC Irvine, um, has, been, has been doing many of these. This is the standard way that I'm performing most of my TIF procedures as well. But Dr. Chang pu just published a very elegant uh, series of his experience performing uh, this procedure that was just published in, in 2020 showing that of the 60 patients that he, um, that he performed this procedure on and published their data, um, after their CTIF procedure, six months and 12 months later, the frequency of symptoms significantly improved, severity of symptoms significantly improved, heartburn and regurgitation. As you see here on the second diagram, there is no third bar because the regurgitation scores really went down to zero, which is amazing. And we see here at um, six or at baseline six months and 12 months, we see the two sets of graphs showing the percentages of patients that are on proton pump inhibitors, the percentages of patients that are on H2 blockers. And we see that, especially if we look at the PPI graph, we see that at 12 months after a CTIF procedure, five, only 5% 5 of patients are on proton pump inhibitors, um, which, is, which is absolutely amazing. And in my experience, that really it matches um, what I'm seeing as well with my patients. They're just, all right, they're able to stop their PPIs. They're able to stay off their PPIs. Here's uh, another example of a procedure that I performed several months ago uh, where a patient, and excuse again the graphic uh, images, but I think this is just so important to see where um, on the top left image, uh, this is a laparoscopic image now of uh, a patient undergoing surgery and so when the cameras are um, used to uh, look at a patient's anatomy inside their abdomen, we see that the opening in the diaphragm in this patient was just wide open. 
And endoscopically, when I looked at this patient with the camera inside their stomach, we see that their, um, their junction is also very wide open from inside their stomach. So in this case, uh, the surgeon that I work with very beautifully closed up this patient's diaphragm. Uh, that's called a hiatal hernia repair. And then thereafter, I performed the TIF procedure and reconstructed this patient's valve. He was able to completely stop his proton pump inhibitors uh, about one month later and has been able to remain off of them and has been very happy. What's the recovery like from this procedure? This, the TIF and the CTIF procedure can be done in, the out, in an outpatient surgery center or in, a, or in a hospital. If it's done in the hospital, patients sometimes uh, go home the same day. They sometimes stay one or sometimes two nights. Within a few days, a patient can walk, uh, perform light housework or drive, we do ask patients to be on a very gradual advancement of diet and activity over several weeks, um, not because they feel bad, but mainly to just allow that newly reconstructed valve to fuse and heal. And patients are often happy to, to undergo this because, because of this post-operative diet, they're often able to be pounds or more, uh, mainly because of that, that uh, gradual advancement of diet and patients are often very happy. So in summary, GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease is a mechanical problem of the looseness of the gastroesophageal junction. It results in significant life-altering symptoms and it increases risk of complications such as narrowings of the esophagus and even esophageal cancer. And GERD can be treated with lifestyle modifications, medications, procedures and surgeries, but the only way to treat the underlying mechanical problem is with the restoration of the mechanical barrier, which is through procedures and surgeries. The TIF procedure, especially when it's combined with the laparoscopic hiatal hernia repair, provides a good balance between effectiveness, minimal invasiveness, and really with minimal long-term side effects. And that is the absolute key to our um, discussion, which is trying to do the best for our patients, but with minimizing their long-term side effects. So I'm happy to answer any questions uh, from all of you out there. And I really appreciate this opportunity to share this information with you um, because we're really living in an exciting time where we have these exciting uh, treatment options to offer patients. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Shah. That was very informational and educational. I know that all of the patients that are watching really appreciate uh, the detailed information and in the slides. So thank you so much for, for sharing all of that. Um, while you were talking, we got a lot of questions. So okay. hopefully, yeah, so hopefully we can get through some of them. Um, one question that I see that's common that is coming through is kind of what is the workup, um, you know, to determine whether or not a patient is a candidate for the procedure? You know, what types of testing do they need to go mm -hmm. through and what can they expect to do if they come in to see a gastroenterologist for GERD? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's such a great question. So when I'm when a patient comes to me for GERD, they've often already gone down many of these roads and they've gone through the lifestyle modifications and they've gone through multiple medications, um, mainly with their primary care physicians who are, are, are excellent at treating uh, GERD at that level. And so when a patient comes to me, they're often coming to me for for really a long-term solution, such as one of these procedures. And so what I will almost always do is start off with an, uh, an upper GI endoscopy, which is uh, a pretty commonly performed uh, outpatient uh, gastrointestinal procedure 
where a patient usually gets some twilight sedation, and then I will insert a small uh, flexible tube, which is the upper endoscope down the mouth, and I will take a look in their esophagus and stomach and intestine just to, just to confirm that they have signs of acid reflux, to rule out any complications of acid reflux, rule out any potential uh, contraindications or severe problems that may make doing a procedure like this um, not a good idea. Also look for uh, signs of early precancerous changes like Barrett's. And then at that time, I will assess the looseness of the valve. I will assess the uh, size and extent of, of hiatal hernia. And I will often also perform that pH study, which I alluded to earlier, which is when I would um, a place a small probe in the esophagus that attaches by suction. And it's a wireless probe that a patient goes home with. They also go home with a monitor that they wear around their neck. And that monitor stays with them for a couple days as it com wirelessly communicates with that probe. And this just tells us objectively how much acid is coming up into the esophagus and how severe a patient's um, acid reflux is. Um, occasionally, we'll also recommend a, a procedure called an esophageal manometry. In my experience, I recommend that less than 5% of the time. It's a procedure where um, a catheter goes down the nose to measure the, uh, the function of the esophagus. And I really would only recommend that if a patient has like trouble swallowing or other uh, symptoms that may uh, raise suspicion for like a, a motility problem of the esophagus. Thank you so much, I appreciate that. Uh, we've got a, a long question here from Teresa. She's saying, hello, doctor. Uh, she had the TIF and hiatal hernia done in 2019. She said, best thing she's ever done. So that's good. great, congratulations. <laughs> um, however, she says right. she's having some chest pain. Um, she's asking, could it be from scar tissue from the TIF procedure and or from my stomach being up in my chest cavity prior to surgery that has made it sensitive? Uh, she says, I've had my surgery TIF and hydro hernia checked out already and everything is good. Yeah. She's also had a CT scan of her heart and all is okay, um, but it's still she's still having a little bit of chest pain. So she was just kind of wondering if you had any advice or could it help her understand why she's having chest pain. Yeah, well, thanks. Well, thanks for being here, Teresa. And I'm sorry you're having these symptoms. I mean, it's a very complex question, unfortunately, that it, that's difficult to answer just without meeting you and, and knowing your history. Um, but hearing the symptom and hearing your history, uh, it seems very unlikely that chest pain would be related to a surgery. I actually have never seen that. Um, so I would really advise you to see your doctor just to make sure nothing else is going on because there are just dozens of different things that can cause chest pain, including cardiac problems, lung problems, even problems with the musculoskeletal structures like the cartilage and bones, the aorta is in there, the, the large blood vessels. So there's so many conditions that can cause chest pain. Acid reflux is one of them too, but um, seeing chest pain as a complication of this procedure, I've never seen it. And in the literature, it's extremely rare. So I, I would really encourage you to see your doctor, possibly see a cardiologist if you haven't already. Okay, thank you, Dr. Shaw. Uh, another question from uh, Chris, would you recommend TIF? And this is actually a common question I hear a lot. Would you recommend TIF for someone suffering from LPR? Uh, he's tried the Acid Watchers uh, diet, been on us months, made all the adjustments, the lifestyle adjustments, but his symptoms are getting worse. I, I'm so happy that you're here, Chris, because um, not only that you're, you're being educated about this, and I'm sorry to hear about your symptoms, um, but I'm happy you're asking this question because your story is just so common. 
those LPR symptoms. LPR stands for laryngopharyngeal reflux. And what happens is that for various reasons, the acid can irritate the throat. And that symptom of, of it, those throat symptoms from reflux can be extremely stubborn to treat with acid reflux medicines. And we see so many patients sent to us from the ENT doctors because these patients are suffering with these throat symptoms and the medications are just not that effective. I'll give you a couple stories. One is just, and one is just a patient who has a chronic cough, which we think is due to reflux. We never can be absolutely sure but their cough can uh, often be, some clues for us is that the, the cough can be worse after they eat or worse after they lie down or worse after they eat some trigger foods. Um, the, so that, that's the, a very classic patient who has the LPR. The other is um, the hoarseness. So another classic example is I, I had a patient who works as an air traffic controller and his job function was just absolutely dependent on his voice, as you can imagine, and he was going hoarse because of his acid reflux. And so for this patient, I did the hiatal hernia plus the TIF procedure, and within weeks, his voice was restored back to normal, and he was able to go back to work as an air traffic controller, and he was extremely happy. I've done, uh, I've done the TIF procedure on several patients whose persistent symptom is the cough despite the uh, proton pump inhibitors. And in the vast majority of these cases, the cough just goes away and patients are very, very happy. So yes, the LPR symptoms are particularly stubborn to treat with the pr proton pump inhibitors, but they're the symptoms that really respond, in my experience, so well to fixing the mechanical barrier problem. Yeah, those stories are great. You know, I've heard stories also of singers that have lost their voice and yep. Yep. Uh, they get that fixed. They they get their voice back. So interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So another question. Uh, I think this is the same from uh, Mike. Actually, is asking, can you treat an inflamed esophagus without reducing stomach acid production? That's a, a good question, and also a little bit of a complex question. Um, the inflamed esophagus, we usually call esophagitis, and it depends on how severe the esophagitis is. If a patient has maybe some mild esophagitis, we can treat that problem with, uh, a with restoring the mechanical barrier, such as the TIF procedure. Um, but if a patient has severe esophagitis, then it may not be safe to um, perform uh, such significant manipulations to the walls of the esophagus until that esophagitis is healed. And so we will sometimes have patients be on a PPI to heal their esophagitis before we safely can perform the TIF procedure. Um, but yes, if a patient has esophagitis and, it, and if we're able to heal it with proton pump inhibitors, yeah, we absolutely can perform a TIF procedure and then get them off the medications and they do quite well. And I've definitely seen that in my experience very frequently. Great, thank you. Uh, Candice is asking, why does the LES weaken in the first place and why is it so prevalent? Candice, it's such an uh, amazing question and I get asked that question every single day. And it really is, it's again, it's a, it's a, the answer comes down to physics and it comes down to mechanics. And we have multiple compartments in our body. One is the chest compartment, the other is the abdominal compartment, and really anything that increases the pressure in the intra-abdominal compartment, we call that the intra-abdominal pressure, 
um, really puts strain on that valve and it's what loosens that valve. And the factors that can increase the intra-abdominal pressure include being overweight or obese. That's absolutely the number, number one most important factor. But also things like chronic overeating, even in a patient who's not overweight or obese, they can loosen their valve just by overeating frequently. Um, in women, it's extremely common, um, especially women who have, uh, who have gone through pregnancy or especially childbirth, that unfortunately naturally loosens that valve um, and sometimes irreversibly. Chronic heavy lifting or straining, those are all risk factors for loosening that valve. Um, so it's, it's an excellent question, and it is something that I get asked frequently, but sometimes it just happens over time and someone has, who has none of those risk factors, and it can just be a process that, of normal aging. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Tom, you, you mentioned heavy lifting. Uh, Tom's asking, how soon can I go back to lifting weights and working out after having the TIF procedure? Yeah, it's a great, great question because a lot of patients who I see for this are very athletic and fit. And they, they're, one of their biggest complaints is that when they exercise, then again, that intra-abdominal pressure increases when we exercise and that, that provokes acid reflux. So I get a lot of very athletic and fit patients coming to me for this. And then again, they ask that same question, how soon? And it really, it is important to go through that several week process of waiting to lift anything heavy to allow that newly reconstructed valve to fuse and heal. So we ask patients to be on uh, a, followed by a soft diet for another few weeks. We ask patients to not lift anything over five pounds for two weeks and then not lift anything over 10 pounds for another few weeks. Um, so that advancement is gradual, not because patients feel bad and they feel like they can't do those things. It's because we want to give some time to allow that delicate work we've done to fuse and heal. And once a patient's gone past about six weeks, they really can go back to normal activities and do whatever they want to do. Thank you. A question from LJ, while recovering from the TIF procedure, when can one get the COVID vaccine? When while recovering, one must avoid vomiting if the vaccine causes one to get sick, chills and headaches that could cause one to vomit. Would it be best to wait a few months after TIF? Thank you. Oh, oh, it's such a great question. And actually, that reminds me of um, the what I, I what I wanted to do was alleviate people's concerns about getting things like this done during the time of the pandemic, because it can be very distressing just leaving the house, but especially getting a medical procedure done. So I just wanted to give some reassurance that really during the pandemic, um, such significant precautions are being taken in the healthcare setting. Um, where really most, if not all patients are, are asked to be tested for COVID and quarantine after that. And the amount of sanitization that's performed and the amount of personal protective equipment that's used during these procedures um, really is quite safe. And I've, for, for myself, and I've, uh, I feel very safe for myself, and I've had family and friends come in for procedures during the pandemic. Um, so I, I I do feel like getting things done during the pandemic is very safe. I know I haven't answered your question yet, but I also wanted to address um, the concern about doing this during the pandemic. I've actually seen um, an increase in the volume of having this done during the pandemic. And what I'm being told by patients is that they're finding that this is the perfect time for them to get this done because a lot of patients are, are working from home right now. 
and a lot of patients um, are are not really eating out as much these days or, or doing a lot of strenuous things that they were doing before. And so they're able to take it easy at home and recover much more easily than they were prior to the pandemic. Um, to answer your question about the vaccine, um, I also wanted to give a plug about that. It's extremely important for everyone to get vaccinated whenever it comes to their time, because that's really the main way this pandemic is going to um, be addressed. Um, so I recommend getting your vaccine as, as soon as you can, really. I think irrespective of the timing of getting this or any procedure done, once you have the opportunity to get your vaccine, I would get it done. If there happens to be a time that you're going to get your vaccine and maybe you're going to have the TIF procedure like within a couple of days of that, I would probably not recommend that. But other than that, I would just recommend get your vaccine as soon as you are able to and you have the opportunity to. And um, that's pretty much irrespective of getting these procedures done. So I would also recommend getting these procedures done as soon as it's convenient for you. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, another Andrea that's a patient is asking or a potential patient is asking have I've heard stories of the fasteners breaking at times from vomiting, for example, with mm -hmm. the refinements in the TIF over the years, has this improved? And should vomiting still be avoided if possible to reduce risk of hernia and or TIF repair? That's a great question, Andrea. And and yes, that's a uh, almost sort of a technical question for us that Yes, we are very careful in making sure that in the immediate post-operative period that patients don't vomit because, yeah, it is it is a slight concern that if a patient vomits in the immediate post-operative period, meaning like in the first week, uh, then there is a risk of, uh, of damage to the work we did and potential displacement, not really breakage. The, the, the fasteners are very strong. They're as strong as 3-0 non-absorbable suture, which is, which is very strong. So there's not a concern about the fasteners, but potentially displacement could occur if a patient vomits within the first few days. So we are very aggressive at treating post-operative nausea and vomiting, and we will we will most frequently uh, prescribe patients um, anti-nausea pills just in case they feel nausea. That being said, when I talk to my patients during the first couple of days after the procedure, it's pretty uncommon that they need to actually take those anti-nausea medicines because they actually just feel very well within the really the first day. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. A uh, question from Allison. For the pH study, how much reflux determines severity? She just had a 24-hour pH done last week and had 157 episodes of acid during that time. She's just wondering what severity level her GERD is based off of that. Is that pretty high? Yeah, um, is the is my slide deck still up or? It's not. No. Okay, that's this okay. No problem. Yeah, I was just going to show an example, but no problem. So to answer your question, it's a great question. Also, kind of a. Are you Christian? Are you saying that my slide deck is up? Yep, he's got yeah. it up. All right. So let's go back to uh, actually. It's a technical question, but a really great one, which is um, here is uh, my patient from 2018 uh, showing the example of the pH study. So we see here on the left, uh, this patient's pH study uh, over 48 hours. And we see that the red spikes below the line are all of the events, the acid reflux events that this patient had. And the two main numbers that we use to grade a severity of a patient's reflux is what I'm showing you at the bottom of the screen. One is called the esophageal acid exposure, which uh, a normal value is less than 4.4%. 4 
In this patient's was 9.9. The other is the Demeester score, which is a calculation of the severity and duration and frequency of the reflux events. And the normal score is less than 14.7. This patient's score is, uh, is 35. And you see normalization of these scores on the right side image, which is the six months post tip. And this is a very common uh, scenario that we see that a patient's um, pH study is just really completely normalized uh, after getting a TIF procedure done. And so I, I, hope you, I hope this helps answer your question. Perfect, thank you. We're coming down, uh, getting close to the uh, uh, end of the hour, if you will. Um, we have a, two more questions that I wanted to make sure that we get through. Uh, Barbara's asking, and maybe this is you know a, a, your opinion, how many TIF procedures procedures should uh, their surgeons have performed the TIF in order to feel confident, I guess is what she's kind of asking. Great question. Um, I think these days, and I, I wish I had more time to go through the, the evolution of the TIF procedure since it was uh, FDA approved in 2007. So I think endogastric solutions has done such an amazing job really making multiple iterations of the device just to make the process much more streamlined for the surgeon like me. And so, you know, using the most current version of the device, it's actually the, the learning curve is actually not that bad. I would say after about 10 procedures, uh, the learning curve is, is really not that bad. So it, 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 I, I, if there are any gastroenterologists out there looking, um, uh, attending this talk, um, I would encourage you to look into doing this procedure because um, the, really the learning curve is really not that bad about after about 10 procedures um, I felt very comfortable yeah thank you and actually if you are watching uh, we do have a presentation titled the evolution of TIF and it is on our YouTube channel so you can go to girdhelp.com's YouTube channel and you can watch that um, actual TIF talk that uh, discuss the evolution of the TIF procedure um, last question is from let's see uh someone's asking chris is asking if we can download the presentation so presented so uh, we'll get back to you and dr shaw it's up to you if you want to share that uh, maybe we can connect you with him and you can provide the uh, slide deck to him or more information if you yeah want i would just uh yeah i would encourage all of you who are who are, who are watching uh i think this is going to be um recorded i believe andrea is that correct and so if you just look on the facebook page uh, for this event, I believe this is where you'll be able to uh, eventually see the recording of this presentation because uh, I think we just had such um, excellent discussion points that it's a it's a really good learning opportunity for anyone who wants to go back and review the information we went over. Yes, thank you. And actually, we'll be on Facebook and we will also be posting it on our YouTube channel as well. So there'll be two places where you can uh, watch the recording of this video that we're talking about today. Um, so uh, before we end, uh, I want to thank you again for bringing up esophageal cancer. Uh, as you mentioned, um, you know, today or today, I guess it's April now in this April is Esophageal Cancer Awareness Month. Thank you, so um, thank you for bringing that up. And, and we do like to um, bring awareness around it. Um, and we are actually having a special um, two hour uh, live event for esophageal cancer on April 20th. So if you're watching and would like to join us, we will be on Facebook and YouTube as well. But before we end tonight, 
I would like to ask you, Dr. Shaw, if you have any advice or last, um, last, last mentions or whatnot or advice for patients that are watching, what should they do um, if they are suffering from GERD today? From GERD today? Yeah, I mean, there's just so many patients that are out there suffering. And I feel like the patients that I see are the tip of the iceberg. And there's just millions of people that are suffering from this disease. So I would really just encourage you to see your doctor and potentially be referred to a gastroenterologist. Um, I'll be honest, this procedure is still not in widespread awareness, even among the gastroenterology community. So I do um, encourage you all to educate yourself. Go on the girdhelp.com website and really inform yourself about this procedure because I really truly believe that this provides the best balance between tolerability and effectiveness, minimization of long-term side effects, um, being able to completely stop anti-reflux medicines, restoring uh, a patient's gastroesophageal junction anatomy back to normal anatomy that we're born with. Um, and I just encourage you to be equipped with this information. And I think that the, the key point in all this that I mentioned multiple times is that we need to think about risks and benefits of what we do. And we're trying to do the best of minimizing harm. And, and sometimes patients may end up with more problems than they um, than they thought they would have when they go through certain procedures. And so really minimization of side effects, I think is the key point with the procedure that we talked about today. Perfect, thank you. Can you please remind everybody that's watching uh, where they can uh, get a hold of you or call uh, to schedule an appointment if they are in your area and would like to schedule an appointment with you? Thank you, Andrea. Uh, so again, my name is Ketan Shah, K-E-T-A-N-S-H-A-H. And you can find me in Laguna Hills, California. Uh, and I'm a gastroenterologist with the Saddleback Medical Group. Our phone number is 949, area code 949-770-7163. And you can also go to my website, which is www.ketanshahmd.com. And all of my contact information can be easily found there. If you search my name on Google, you can easily find me there as well. Fantastic. So I would encourage you to make an appointment. I'd be more than happy to take care of you and see you. Fantastic. And your information is on the screen right now. So if you are watching and you want all that information, it is on the screen. So you can contact them for an appointment. If you are not in the area, um, please feel free to visit girdhelp.com. There is a physician finder on there and you can enter your zip code or your state and you'll be able to find a TIF trained physician in your area. Well, Dr. Shaw, we can't thank you enough for being here this, um, with us this evening and sharing your very um, information with us. I know um, that we appreciate it here at Endogastric Solutions as well as the patients that are watching tonight. So thank you so much for joining us this evening. We really appreciate it. Um, and I know people watching appreciate it as well. If you are suffering from chronic acid reflux and want more information, please visit GERDhelp.com or download our GERDhelp mobile app. Thanks for tuning into another episode of TIFF Talk. Leave your questions and comments on our social media at GERDhelp. Live well, GERD free.